You are listening to Twisted Travel and True Crime. Welcome aboard. Let me give you the normal heads up that I currently record this podcast while living on a small sailboat with my family. A boat isn't the best place for podcasting. It's a bit noisy, but it's what I've got and it's what I'm going to work with. Today's case is a listener case suggested by Kenneth W. It's a great case that he suggested months ago, and I'm finally getting to it. I want to take you with me to Cancun, Mexico. Cancun, as you probably know, is a tourist hotspot with huge resorts, beaches, and nightlife. The city began as a small tourism project in 1974. There were only five small hotels, a coconut plantation, and virgin forest. In the 21st century, it has become known for its retail drug sales to tourists, as well as being a center for money laundering. This has led to a drastic increase in the number of homicides, to the point where these acts have begun to put pressure on the tourism industry. Regardless, over 15 million people visit the little island to enjoy the near-perfect weather and bright blue water. Bruce Beresford Redman wasn't a stranger to island beauty, but his island experiences tended to be more remote. He was a reality TV producer who would help build the Survivor series, which still airs over 20 years after it started. This was a job he loved and worked for since high school. He grew up in New Jersey, went to college in Sarasota, Florida, and ended up working in California. It was there that he went out to dinner at a restaurant called Zabumba. It was a Brazilian restaurant and bar and gathering space. It was especially loved by Brazilian expats and people who liked to dance the samba. The owner, Monica Burgos, was a former Brazilian beauty queen and savvy businesswoman who ran her restaurant with charm and charisma. She was very outgoing. A social butterfly would be an appropriate description. When Bruce met Monica, he was enthralled with her. He was a quieter, blend-into-the-background type of guy. He kept returning to the restaurant in a bid to get her attention. This eventually worked, and his feelings for her progressed towards love. Lucky for him, she returned his feelings, and they eventually married in 1999. Soon after, Bruce and Monica had two children. Their daughter was born in 2005, and their son was born two years later. Bruce was very busy with his work on the reality TV show Survivor. The first season came out in 2000, and it was a hit. He spent hours and hours, sometimes days and weeks, away from Monica while he worked on the show. Monica kept her business going strong, too. She worked a lot of evenings and weekends. They were both very successful in their careers, but all their hard work meant was that it was hard for them to find time for each other. This seems like a downfall in many marriages. People spend more time apart than together, and the quality time isn't there. That's what was happening with Bruce and Monica. Bruce began to have an affair, and it's rumored that Monica did too, but I never found any proof of that, so it may not be true. These allegations came from Bruce. Bruce was caught in his affair red-handed, and there was plenty of proof to back it up. His affair partner was Joy Pierce. They were secretly dating for months when Monica found out about it. I believe Monica had suspected something was going on for a very long time, maybe even years, because Bruce later made a time reference in an email to Joy that said, Clearly, I am a piece of shit. What I did to Monica was lousy, and as you know, it required me to lie to her for months. In fact, her hatred for you 
which was wholly unjustified, has had me lying to her whenever you were concerned for years. Monica must have sent something very early on about Joy and Bruce. Finally, she found proof of the affair by reading texts on Bruce's phone. She confronted him, and he admitted to her that he and Joy had been lovers. Monica was furious and responded quickly by withdrawing money from a joint bank account and placing it in her own account. She called her children's school and told them that her husband was no longer allowed to pick up her kids. Then she asked her sister to book a vacation to Hawaii for her and the kids, and before she left she changed the locks on her door so Bruce couldn't get in. She took those vacation days to think and to calm her nerves. When she arrived back home, Bruce was waiting at the airport with flowers. He apologized and said he wanted to work things out. His affair had pushed their marriage to the breaking point, and Monica was seriously considering divorce. Being unknowingly put in a position where you now have to make hard decisions that will drastically affect your life and the lives of your children isn't easy. Making a decision to leave a cheater or even a regular spouse, especially when you have children, is not an easy one to make. There are so many factors in play. Dealing with holidays and future partners is only the tip of the iceberg. She was considering getting back together with him because of their kids, and a part of her still loved Bruce. He was apologetic and said that he wanted to make things work with her. She was considering whether they could make their marriage work, but she wasn't sure that could happen. Bruce, knowing Monica's birthday was only a month away, suggested that perhaps getting away together as a family would be a good place to start the healing process. It was decided that they would go to Cancun. Just a week before their departure, Bruce asked whether Monica thought he should buy an insurance policy for her for the trip. He told her that it would benefit the kids if she should happen to die. Each child would receive $500,000. He explained that he already had an insurance policy, which would give her over a million if he died. She thought it was weird. They never had taken insurance policies out before on any of their other trips. It was strange enough that she even mentioned it to her sister, telling her that it made her feel like she was living in a soap opera. That spidey sense was tingling but her more rational mind thought, no, I'm sure there's nothing to worry about. He just wants to make sure we are all well cared for. They left for Mexico, and the first day at the resort was what you might expect. They went to some timeshare presentations and took trips to some nearby attractions, one of which was an eco-park. It was beautiful, and they visited an aquarium. They went out to dinners. Monica was high energy and outgoing. She loved planning and going on adventures like these. They kept really busy for the first three days, but by day four, everyone was getting tired. Bruce said that he and Monica disagreed on the fourth night about what they should do the next day. Eventually, it was decided that Monica would take a full day to relax and shop and have some time to herself. He would watch the kids and take care of things back at the hotel and just relax there. Maybe have a drink poolside. The next morning, April 5th, Bruce said the place was busy. It was spring break and the hotel was filled with teens and college students looking for a good time. Bruce planned to wake up early that day. He got up at five and began playing games with their son. They took turns driving backwards around the room and crashing into furniture, making a lot of noise. There was screaming and laughing. A hotel concierge would later testify that a British family in a nearby room, their names were the Cooks, 
called to complain about the noise. They said their teenage children had heard a woman screaming. A handwritten note, written by hotel staff, said that the cooks complained of screams, crying for help, and extremely loud banging. It was added that they thought it sounded like a woman in distress. It was also noted that the cooks felt worried and scared. I feel like you have to be very worried and scared to make a phone call to the concierge like that. The note was given to a concierge by a hotel employee, and the concierge dialed the Beresford Redmond room to talk about the disturbance. Bruce Redmond told him that it was just him and his wife arguing, but later he would change his story and say that instead it was just him and his son playing loud games. Bruce said that around 8.30, Monica got ready. She put on a blue sundress, sandals, and gold hoops in her ears. His daughter Camilla reported that her mother walked out the door and said, I love you. I'll be back soon. Ciao. Bruce said he hung around during the day, spending the day at the pool, lounging, enjoying the sun. During an afternoon swim, Camilla opened her eyes underwater for the first time, and she said she was so excited to tell her mom the news when she got back. When they went back to the room, they watched movies and took a nap, then ate dinner, and later that evening, Bruce put the kids to bed. He didn't begin to worry until well into the night. This was because Monica was a night owl. She worked long hours at Zabumba, and sometimes she and her friends would go out to the clubs afterwards. He thought maybe she ended her long day with an evening of making friends and drinking. Maybe she was dancing at one of the nearby bars. Throughout the night, he worried enough that he repeatedly left the room, checking to see if she was coming home. But the next morning, she still hadn't returned, and that's when Bruce reported her missing to the hotel. Over the next couple of days, Bruce shuttled back and forth between the police station, the American consulate, and the hotel. He gave his statements, some of which were conflicting. A couple days later, friends of the family flew down to Cancun and took the kids home. The day that Monica went missing, Bruce made a phone call to his sister to tell her that she was missing and some of the family flew down to help look for Monica. At the same time, Monica's family filed a missing persons report with the L.A. Sheriff's Department. They shared letters that Bruce had written to his girlfriend, Joy, as well as one he sent to Monica on March 4th. That was only a month before her murder. Monica had been spying on her husband's emails and sent them to her sisters. Some of these notes were between Monica and Bruce. In one of them, he wrote, I don't know if you'll ever be able to forgive me, but if there's ever anything real between us, there can be no more lies from me, and that's why I'm writing this to you. He apologized for his affair. But Monica also had letters that she had found that had been written to Joy from Bruce. He had been asking for a second chance from her as well. The affair clearly wasn't over. In the late afternoon of April 8th, three days after Monica vanished and her 42nd birthday, Bruce returned to his hotel room to find several people waiting for him. This included a group of police officers who he says cornered him and pressed him for money. They told him that they believed he killed Monica and that money might help the problem go away. A female officer led him outside and along a walkway away from the crowd. She told him that Monica's body had been found in a sewage well, only 75 yards from their room. In fact, it was visible from their balcony. He was now a central figure in a murder investigation. 
Questions about his actions in the hours before her disappearance grew. Why hadn't she taken her passport and phone with her? That made no sense. Why would she leave it behind? Bruce's response was that she was forgetful and careless, especially with phones, and besides, the one she had was broken. It was true, the screen was cracked, but it still worked. When Bruce was asked why it took so long for him to report that she was missing, his response was that she was a night owl, there wasn't anything unusual about her time away, and he hadn't expected her home before 10 p.m. anyway. He was starting to feel pressure from authorities, so he contacted his lawyer and asked if it was okay to return to the States. The Mexican authorities had taken his passport, so upon his lawyer's advice, he took a bus north to Texas, where he walked across the border with an American driver's license in hand. Mexico responded quickly. The prosecutors drafted a request for extradition claiming that Bruce had broken the law by leaving Mexico and he should be considered a fugitive. In the extradition papers, he wrote that Bruce had killed his wife Monica on April 5th of 2010 at the Hotel Moon Palace in Cancun. She died by suffocation. It went on to say that the couple had been having marital trouble for some time before her murder. She confronted him about his infidelity, which he acknowledged, and he asked for her forgiveness. When Monica found out that he hadn't stopped contact with his mistress, she demanded a divorce. She said that if he agreed to the divorce, she would give him half the money she had transferred to a new account, and if he didn't agree to the divorce, she would keep all the money. The authorities said that the trip had been planned by Bruce and that he had paid for it. The nanny for the Redmonds was interviewed by the United States law enforcement, and her statement was that Monica and Bruce had a big fight the night before they left for Cancun. This was partially due to the ongoing affair, and because Monica had learned that Redmond had gone through with the purchase of life insurance. The red flags were flying. He must have been a smooth talker, though, because she still left with him for Cancun. The extradition paper said the problems continued in Cancun. In a conversation from Cancun on April 4th, the day before Monica disappeared, she told her sister that she found evidence that Bruce was still in contact with Joy. This caused a huge fight. An employee at the Hotel Moon Palace provided a sworn statement to Mexican authorities, saying that around 8.30 on April 4th, she saw a man and woman arguing in front of the Los Tacos restaurant at the hotel. They observed the interaction between the two people for several minutes and noticed that the woman was crying. The employee said he continued to watch the argument and that Bruce twice attempted to physically assault the woman, but that he stopped when he realized that the man was watching. But that wasn't all. The statement from the Cook family about the loud noise and screaming for help was also included in the extradition papers. It also said that one of the hotel housekeepers said she cleaned their room a couple days before Monica's disappearance and didn't notice anything unusual inside the room. But when she went back on the 5th, she noticed a Do Not Disturb sign was hanging on the door. She didn't enter the room that day, but she thought it was odd since it had never been hung there before. There was testimony from Monica's sister saying that she would never leave without her cell phone and definitely wouldn't have left her cell phone at the hotel if she was traveling and leaving her children behind. The extradition papers quoted Bruce's sworn statement saying his wife didn't return on the 5th. Around 10 p.m. he went to bed, and then he woke up around 11, 
seeing that she hadn't returned, so he went out and walked around the hotel looking for her. He said he went in and out of the room several times, but he never spoke to anyone in the hotel, and he never reported that his wife was missing. Eventually, he returned to his room and fell asleep. This was contradictory to a statement that he made to Monica's sister. He told her that he fell asleep and didn't wake up until the next morning. It was Tuesday, April 6th, at 7 a.m. that he finally told hotel employees that his wife was missing. He was told he should report that information to local prosecutors, but instead he went to the U.S. Consulate. They told him he needed to report it to the prosecutor as well, but he didn't do that until nearly 6 p.m. that evening. A search party was made to look for Monica, and her body was found by an employee at the hotel on April 8th. She had been thrown into a sewage tank on the hotel grounds. The autopsy report said she had died from asphyxiation and that there was bruising on her face and a bad head wound. A forensic expert examined Beresford Redmond's room. He found stains, presumably blood, on a pillar inside the room and sheets on the bed and also on a railing. They presumptively tested positive for the presence of blood. The sewage tank was in view of the victim's hotel room, and there was a footprint and damaged plants leading to the sewage tank, indicating that the body might have been moved there from another location. My name is John Lorden, and I've been looking into hundreds of unsolved mysteries over the past five years on my YouTube channel, Lorden Arts, and I've been known to bring a respectful, victim-focused approach to the stories that I cover while donating thousands of dollars directly to those cases and the charities that help them. Now, I'm bringing that approach and sensibility, along with some of the biggest mysteries I've ever looked into and some new ones, to a weekly podcast called Seriously Mysterious. From bizarre occurrences to unsolved murders and unexplainable disappearances, everything is fair game on this show as long as as it's Seriously Mysterious. You can find Seriously Mysterious on your favorite podcatchers or by visiting seriouslymysterious.com. Let's look into the mysterious together. Even more damning was the fact that records from the hotel indicate that one of the keys issued to Beresford, Redmond, and his family was used to open the room to their door at least nine times between midnight and 7 a.m. Four of these entries are recorded as occurring in a 15-minute time period between 4 a.m. and 4.15. When Monica was found, her purse was found with her, but what was missing was a key card. They'd been offered four key cards, all of which were used during the time period that Monica was missing. This means that she never had one, not only that, but there was no record of her leaving the property, ever. The hotel kept strict records of who came and went from the hotel, and she never left, but she was also never seen during the time period Bruce said she was gone. The police also stated that there were scratches and abrasions on both of Bruce's hands. He also had abrasions behind his left ear, on his chin, and on his right ankle. He stated they came from a slippery wall that he slipped on in an excursion earlier in the trip, and that the scratch behind his ear was caused when he surfaced too quickly while swimming. He jumped in with a life jacket and came up underneath a rope that was connected to a boat. 
Friends and family of the couple were surprised by Bruce's calm demeanor. He'd always been quiet, but he didn't seem to show emotion, as most people thought he should. We all know by now people act differently in stressful situations, so this really didn't mean much. Back in Rancho Palos Verdes, Bruce was living with his children, but TV crews maintained a constant presence outside their house. They blasted the living room and the front yard with cameras, day and night. Bruce was defending himself, saying he never broke any laws by leaving Mexico. He said his wife had been killed, and then he was emotionally messed up. He tried to stay there, and when he realized he couldn't accomplish anything, he went home to be with his children. He said, I didn't feel like a fugitive at the time, and I don't feel like one now. He was under security in the States, and eventually the press found out that his mistress, Joy, was now living in one of Bruce's homes. This didn't make him look good. On November 10, 2010, seven months after Monica's body was found, Bruce was arrested and sent to the Federal Detention Center, while Mexico's expedition request made its way through the U.S. courts. They presented a compelling case to the American magistrate. There was blood evidence around the hotel room, and shoe prints that were found near where Monica's body had been found seemed to match Bruce's. The burden of proof for extradition to Mexico only required probable cause, and the Mexican authorities definitely provided probable cause. After 14 months, the U.S. ruled in favor of extradition, and he was flown to Mexico in February of 2012. He was put in the Benita Juarez prison in Cancun. According to a Hollywood Reporter article I read on this, which I'll have a link to in the show notes, the article said the first few weeks after Bruce arrived in prison, he had nothing. When it was time to eat, he had to hold out his hands in the food line, and the cooks would just put the food straight into his hands. The other inmates in his wing cursed him and told him what they do to him when the time is right. Bruce spoke a little bit of Spanish, but not enough to get by in prison. Prisoners in Mexico have to buy their own personal hygiene products, but he had no money, so he had to fish bits of used toilet paper out of the trash to reuse them. He slept on the floor alongside spiders and scorpions and other men called talachos. This was a local term for worker, but in prisoner vernacular it translates to servant. This was a nickname given to all the new people who just arrived in prison. Eventually, rumors spread throughout the jail. This wasn't a regular gringo jailed for fleecing tourists. He was some kind of Hollywood star, and he was in for murder. Inmates would ask for his autograph, thinking he was one of the contestants on the Survivor show instead of the producer. His nickname became Survivor Man. He even worked his way up the ladder high enough to earn himself an actual bed. They were hard to come by because the prisons were overpopulated. Rooms were designed for four, but sometimes held eight or more. Back at home, there were many people hoping he'd fall face first into a fire, like one of the contestants on Survivor. But there were others who were cheering for him and felt that he was completely innocent. His parents were his primary support. They took care of his children, and they took care of selling his property so the money could go towards the care of the kids. His trial began a week after his return to Mexico. Prosecutors claimed he killed his wife early in the morning of April 5th, inside the couple's room at Moon Palace. 
They believe he hit his wife on the head with a blunt object, knocking her out, then proceeded to strangle her. After killing her, he kept her hidden in the room until late that night when his two children were asleep. At that point, he found a way to transport her body out of the room, down two flights of stairs, and across several patios in public areas to the sewer system. They suggested that he may have even thrown her body over the side of the second-floor balcony, collected it at the bottom, and then dragged it to the cistern. There, he supposedly lifted the cover, which weighed more than 250 pounds, and dumped her inside before partially covering it up again and returning to his room. They believed at some point during the day, or while the children slept, he managed to clean up the blood and tissue and soiled clothing that the murder had created. He then waited until the next morning to tell the hotel his wife had disappeared. From the beginning, the prosecution's case didn't seem to line up with the physical evidence. First, the coroner's report said that Monica hadn't been killed that morning, but roughly 18 hours later, sometime after 11 p.m. The coroner also determined that she hadn't been killed in the room, but instead near the cistern. Her body had no signs of lividity caused by long exposure to hard surface. In other words, it's where the blood gathers after a person has died. The skin turns bluish where the blood settles. If her body had been kept in the hotel room for several hours, she would have had lividity on the surfaces that her, of her body that touched the floor. That didn't necessarily mean that Bruce didn't kill her. He just didn't think it happened in the hotel room. As the trial progressed, more errors emerged. The police, for some reason, never did a rape kit on Monica. If nothing else, this would have ruled out the possibility of rape, or maybe even that someone else had killed her. They also never tested under her fingernails. If the wounds on Bruce's neck were deep and serious enough to indicate a fight, most likely his DNA would be under her nails. In court, Bruce's own daughter was questioned. She was seven at the time, and she said that she and Monica had put band-aids on the cuts Bruce sustained during his outings, Immediately after returning to the U.S., the two children had been placed with a therapist, and in her deposition during the extradition hearing, the therapist testified that based on years of close observation, she believed that neither child had witnessed any physical violence between their parents in Mexico or at any other time in their relationship. The blood samples that were found in the hotel room were genetically tested, but they came back belonging to a man but they didn't belong to Bruce. Unfortunately, by the time the crime scene investigators arrived at the hotel, it had been cleaned twice by hotel authorities. Bruce's legal team brought in an expert witness who found that the type of sand around the sewer cistern didn't match the type of sand found in Bruce's shoes. Interestingly, the size of the shoes in the footprints didn't match Bruce's shoe size either. Not long after the trial began, the prosecution was squirming. They had to admit that a large portion of evidence had been inexplicably lost or damaged by mold and water. Good evidence was gone. Even the witness testimony started showing cracks. The hotel employees who said they had seen the couple fighting outside the restaurant began recanting. They said that Bruce wasn't the man who they had seen. The Cook family, who called the concierge to complain about screaming, never gave an official statement to police and never became an official part of the investigation. 
The defense said that the phone call from the concierge asking Bruce why the room was so loud was a misunderstanding. Bruce said that there was a language barrier. The concierge misunderstood him, and what he had described as a discussion had been mistaken as an argument. Without the cooks to confirm, the initial complaint became hearsay evidence. This seems lazy on the police and prosecution's part. I'd be willing to bet that the hotel had records on the cooks, and they could have been found to give an official statement. In between trials, Bruce's home in prison was loud and chaotic. Loud music from several different sources booms out over the prison's white sagging roofs. There are a few prison shops where you can buy cigarettes, candy, and chips. Inmates would wander around pretty much wherever they wanted. There was a building reserved for conjugal visits and a couple of abandoned cars in a central courtyard. According to the Hollywood Reporter article, in between trials, Bruce's home and prison was loud and chaotic. Loud music from several different sources boomed out over the prison's white sagging roofs. There are a few prison shops where he could buy cigarettes, candy, and chips. The inmates wandered around pretty much wherever they wanted. There was a building reserved for conjugal visits, and a couple of abandoned cars sat in a central courtyard. The jail used to be a chop shop for former paramilitary Mexican hitmen. They worked for the cartels. These men are now isolated in their own wing, and the rest of the prison is general population. Some of the most popular inmates are transvestites who apply their trade in an illicit marketplace where Bruce says he has seen that anything, including drugs, murder, and even children, can be bought for a price. Bruce, always the director, took the opportunity, when given, to take a camera into the prison and document his life. You can find this footage online. This is very similar to serial killer William Dathan Holbert, or Wild Bill. I covered his case a few episodes ago. Just like Bill, Bruce opened a can of worms by opening the prison up to scrutiny. Authorities were pissed. Immediately after the show aired, Bruce was deprived of food for two days, and they took all of his belongings. Authorities hadn't given consent, and there were complaints by families of other inmates who appeared in the videos without permission. The producers claimed that he had been given permission. Either way, Bruce was once again sleeping on the floor. His defense team brought in a man named Balderas. He was a forensic scientist and criminologist who received training with Interpol and worked on forensics for the Mexican army. He asked for payment in advance and told the team, whatever I find, I'm not going to change it for, what, for your case. If I find him guilty, that's what I'm going to say. After investigating the case, he came back with the conclusion that there was nothing linking Bruce to Monica's death. Furthermore, he went on to say that he believed Monica had been killed by two people, not one, and that both were likely familiar with the layout of the hotel. He suspected her death started out as a rape and escalated to murder, but without a rape kit or fingernail material or other DNA, there was little evidence to prove it. The prosecutors and the defense had an extremely differing account of the forensics, so the judge brought in his own forensics expert. This third expert found that there were no technical elements linking Bruce to the death of Monica, and there was no evidence that she had died in the hotel room. The Moon Palace Resort hosts thousands of people every year. 
most leaving with happy, possibly drink-induced hazy memories of their time in Mexico. But in the years surrounding Monica's murder, a surprising and disturbing pattern emerged in and around the resort. In 2007, the family of a Canadian guest said that he was beaten to within inches of his life by hotel security guards or other employees of the hotel. The hotel disagreed, saying that the man who ultimately died from his injuries had actually fallen out of a second-story window. In 2009, a Scottish woman who was over 70 years old was vacationing with her family. She'd been there five times before, but this time she went missing. The Attorney General stated that she had gotten lost. The family disputed this claim. The Attorney General then went on to blame the family of neglect. The woman was later found dead in a mangrove swamp three miles outside of the resort. Her family was extremely upset because she never would have walked three miles away from the hotel. Worst of all, on April 30th, less than a month after Monica's murder, a young American woman vacationing at the resort for her brother's wedding was the victim of an attempted rape in her own hotel room by a hotel employee. According to the victim's father, the assault was never investigated, and only a month after that, in May, two hotel employees entered a child's bedroom between 11 p.m. and midnight, which prompted screams and another investigation that went nowhere. These claims don't exonerate Bruce, but it does show a pattern of violence and poor investigation procedures at Moon Palace. Some of these complaints were never investigated at all. This means no one was punished. The prosecution asked for the maximum penalty for the murder, which was 50 years, but the defense had punched holes in the case. In 2015, Bruce Beresford Redman was sentenced to 12 years in prison for murdering his wife. He was released in early 2020 after serving seven and a half years. He returned to California and took over guardianship of his son and daughter, who are 13 and 15 respectively. The children's paternal grandmother will remain guardian of their estate and will be in charge of their financial affairs. Bruce maintains his claims of innocence today. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please take a generous moment to give Twisted Travel and True Crime a nice rating and review, or share it with a friend. Just a little FYI, I recently saw that you can now rate podcasts on Spotify if you use that app. I'd really like to thank all the longtime listeners. You're the best. Thanks so much for supporting this little podcast that's slowly growing because of you and your recommendations. Thanks to all of you. I'd like to wish you all fair winds and following seas and a very happy new year.